Hi, this is Holly Grace calling from Modesto, California. I'm currently driving home after a very long week providing behavioral health services to youth and young adults experiencing homelessness. Today, I was excited to congratulate four of our young adults as they move from our low barrier shelter into transitional housing. This podcast was recorded at 12.19 p.m. Eastern on Monday, April 11th. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Okay, enjoy the show. Wow, she's doing really good work. That's amazing and important work, really. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Domenico Montanaro, Senior Political Editor and Correspondent. And today we've got NPR's Kirk Siegler with us, who covers many, many things for NPR, including politics in the Northwest. Hey, Kirk. Hey, guys. So you have some new reporting out of your home state of Idaho, where uh, a group of more centrist Republicans are trying to defeat a number of far-right extremist candidates on the ballot in this year's midterms. So let's just take a step back. Could you talk about what the environment has been like in Idaho that has allowed some more extremist candidates to even get a foothold in state politics? Well, I think, yeah, historically, uh, the listeners will know that Idaho has always been associated with extremism, political extremes. You know, just think back in recent-ish times to the 1990s, uh, the standoff at Ruby Ridge and other militias in the northern panhandle uh, and white supremacist groups and Aryan nations groups. But I think what's new is these extremes have lately entered the actual Republican Party and are in elected positions, they're on school boards, they're even on library boards, particularly in the northern panhandle of the state. And I would say this really started happening in earnest after the Trump election, and even more so right around the beginning of the pandemic. Um, You have a lieutenant governor in the state that is openly uh, touting her ties to the Idaho 3% militias. Uh, You have a number of other candidates uh, for office who have militia ties and some legislators in the statehouse at the moment who are aligned directly with these far-right groups. Can we be clear, though, when we talk about extremists? Because that's a pretty big label to toss around in politics. When we're talking about extremists in this case of these Idaho races, is it people who have support or have flirted with support with white supremacist groups? You you mentioned militias, sort of anti-democratic, small d sort of forces. When, When you're saying extremists, what do you mean? Well, in particular, the Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan, uh, who made national headlines repeatedly for uh, uh, issuing executive orders when the governor of Idaho left the state. And it's an important distinction here. These are two independently elected offices. McGeehan just caught uh, controversy for attending AFPAC, the America First uh, Political Action Committee. Uh, many people said she was cozying up to white nationalists. Then you also have a couple of candidates who were directly involved and arrested for their roles in Western uh, armed standoffs mm-hmm. involving the Bundy family. Right. And Eamon Bundy is running for governor in Idaho. He's no longer in the Republican primary. He's running as an independent. He, of course, led an armed standoff against federal agents in a bird refuge in Oregon. But Kirk, who are the moderate forces who you found who are pushing back against the extremist elements of the party there? Well, yeah, here's where things get interesting. Even in a state like Idaho, there is a 
fairly organized effort to uh, push back against this. And in particular, uh, the story that we recently focused on, or the the group that we recently focused on in my reporting, was a is a political action group called Take Back Idaho. Now, this is a group of very prominent uh, former Republican elected leaders, including a Supreme Court justice or state Supreme Court justice and state Speaker of the House. Very prominent Republicans in the eighties, nineties, even into the aughts, and uh, also a um, basically what I would say, kind of run of the mill, classic even if stereotypical, Western conservatives from rural places, ranchers, uh, a lot of ag interests are in, are in this group. They formed a pact to uh, fight back against what they call is the encroaching extremism, the focus on culture wars, when a state like Idaho, just like many others, faces many pressing issues with education funding, they say, and infrastructure, but yet the entire party seems to be focused on uh, these issues that they say don't really actually affect a lot of Idahoans. Well, what I think is so interesting about this, and you talk about some of this in your reporting, is that the incumbent governor there, Brad Little, uh, you know, by many standard definitions, <laughs> right. he would still be considered a very conservative politician. And he's being attacked from the right for not being conservative enough. Right. This is a the governor of Idaho is a, a Brad Little. He just signed a Texas style abortion bill. Um, and but, you know, almost like puzzlingly, uh, I had people in this recent reporting trip tell me that he was a liberal so that's, I think, tells you kind of where the Republican base of the party is nationwide. And one of the reasons they'll say that is that uh, Governor Little, unlike uh, a couple of Republican governors further to the right, uh, both here in the West and around the country, he refused to, during the pandemic, uh, ban all mask wearing. He allowed local control, allowed local jurisdictions to implement mask ordinances. And in fact, he recently vetoed uh, a bill that would have banned all private employers from requiring uh, vaccines. Because he hasn't fallen completely in line, I'd say, with the sort of Tea Party extremes of the Republican Party, he in Idaho, uh, considering from the base, is branded as a rhino, a Republican in name only. Domenico, we've seen this tension playing out between wings of the Republican Party for a long time now. We've had this conversation on the podcast many, many times. Do you think our definition of what's moderate and what's conservative, I mean, I, I always am really cautious now in putting these labels out there because the definition of a moderate today is very different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, has the center point of the Republican Party just naturally shifted more to the right. Well, it definitely has. And it's been pulled there, you know, starting with Sarah Palin in 2009, through the Tea Party that rose up in opposition to President Obama, and then through the, you know, win by former President Trump, the party has definitely been pulled. And I don't think it's in a moderate to conservative, you know, spectrum as far as how strongly you uh, prefer tax cuts, or yeah. <laughs> anything or uh, whether defense. or not. Right, or whether you're against uh, abortion rights, for example, which have always been sort of litmus test conservative issues. This is what we're talking – when we're talking about moderate, quote unquote, I think it's really about moderation and about uh, – 
tone and about how you present yourself publicly, the kind of rhetoric that you use, um, the kind of extreme positions you might take. Um, you know, and one of the litmus tests that former President Trump has created now has been about election denial. And, you know, Brad Little, uh, the governor of Idaho, is somebody who's sort of himself has even found himself having to sort of flirt with that idea, backing this lawsuit, um, you know, after the 2020 election to protect the sanctity of the voting processes, even though he said that the vote in Idaho was was safe and secure, and he expects the same of other states. They're trying to walk this line when you have other candidates who are being far more full-throated uh, in this uh, post-Trump era. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll talk more about this in a second. And we're back, and we've been talking about Kirk's reporting out of Idaho. And one other point that you made in your story that I think is worth talking about here is that in this sort of struggle between these moderating forces and these more extreme forces, there aren't a lot of real champions within the party at the top for these moderating forces. Mm -hmm. A lot of these elected officials speaking out are former elected officials. A lot of them are from the Bush era, which was like another lifetime ago politically. <laughs> right. So what does that tell you all about where the energy is right now behind these competing movements? Well, I think it tells you what the effort to moderate the Republican Party, take back Idaho and other groups are up against. And I also think it tells you that they probably don't stand much of a chance uh, in succeeding, at least initially. This primary in Idaho, one of the reasons we're talking about it so much nationally is it is seen as a test for just how far to the right the Republican Party can be pulled. And like I mentioned, you have former state legislators, a former state Supreme Court justice. You don't have any current Republican office holders uh, in Idaho speaking out against this. I grew up in Montana, western Montana next door, yeah. where uh, in the 90s when I was in high school, um, Governor Mark Roscoe was a by today's standards, would be certainly considered a moderate Republican. He was very popular. And I spoke to him for this piece, and he pointed out the same thing, that basically until we get current Republican elected leaders actually speaking and trying to change things, other than just the odd handful or the senator who's retiring, then this movement certainly faces big challenges. But Roscoe told me that the far-right leaders of the party today are a threat to democracy. There's really a huge, great middle of America that is concerned about us as a republic falling apart. Hmm. But you're not seeing uh, a lot of people speaking out about this. And I think that tells you that uh, the base is uh, really attuned and interested in the populist streak of the party that we're seeing all around the country. Uh, so I think that this this effort to try to moderate the party, be it in Idaho or elsewhere, at least right now, is a tall order. Domenico, I think about this in terms of leaders of the party. I mean, you look at Kevin McCarthy, who may well be the next Speaker of the House, who helped lead the ousting of Liz Cheney from Republican leadership over her uh, advocacy against the president, former president's actions on January 6th. You have Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who may well be Majority Leader again, saying, you know, on January 6th, he condemned Donald Trump. He blamed Donald Trump for the actions, but just last week said if he's the nominee in 2024, he'll support him and he'll work for him. Uh, th these are very conflicting messages from the very, very top of the party in Washington. They don't really seem to be embracing the causes that's happening on some of these state level parties. Well, the consistency is power. You know, they look at Trump, they look at the base, they realize that 
Well, maybe they thought January 6th would be more of a red line for a lot of people. And guess what? Uh, for some, it was. But for many, it hasn't been because clearly Trump is still a major player. He's somebody who uh, you know is right now the front runner for the Republican nomination in 2024. He continues to flirt with that as an idea. Um, you know, Some would argue he's lost some of his grip on the party, but not if you look at the behavior of a lot of the candidates for Senate races across the country, where a lot of them are really trying to curry favor with the former president to get his endorsement to uh, curry favor with the base. You know, in states like Idaho, the primary is what matters. Idaho's a red state. Whoever wins the primary is almost certainly going to win in November. But that's not true everywhere, right, Domenico? I mean, you've been looking at the competitive races for the Senate this year. And then there are cases where if a more extreme candidate wins the primary, they could cause their party a whole lot of trouble in November. That is true. I mean, if you look at a state like Ohio, for example, where a candidate like Josh Mandel, uh, you know, who the former state treasurer is very controversial, uh, you know, has really moved more toward the right than where he'd even been previously, and he'd been pretty far right. Um, you think about a place like Nevada out west, you know, uh, Adam Laxalt, who is the former attorney general there. You know, he uh, was he, very much on board the MAGA train, uh, very pro-Trump, led his uh, state party coalition there, uh, and has been a big election denier, uh, boosting Trump's election line. And that is a thread that we've seen throughout the country. My question, though, is going to be whether or not those things wind up derailing, you know, candidates. Uh, in particular, you know, I look at the top Senate race that's most likely to flip in my analysis, and that's Pennsylvania, where you know very well may see the most money spent of any state there. You've got Dr. Oz running and who just got Trump's endorsement over the weekend. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you have this business guy, financier, hedge fund manager in David McCormick, who's really gone through this transformation to really appeal to the MAGA base, uh, even putting out an ad during the Super Bowl with Let's Go Brandon chants in the background, which is intended to be a slight toward uh, President Biden and people who worked for him looking at this saying, what is happening here? So you wonder with the amount of money that's going to be spent in ads from Democratic outside super PACs really trying to tie these candidates to Trump and January 6th, if it's going to have an effect where it takes them down a couple points and winds up costing Republicans, if not the Senate, a few seats. All right, Kirk, as always, thanks for coming on the pod. Good to talk to you. Sure thing. Glad to be here. And that's it for us today. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.